Well, good morning, everyone. And I'm glad each and every one of you are here this morning. And we are in the book of Exodus, chapter 34, if you'd like to open to that, Exodus 34. I do have one announcement to make. Uh, Tomorrow night, Monday night, we're having our adult dinner night out. Now, when we say adult dinner night out, you don't have to be 50. Okay, you don't have to be 60. If you're out of high school and you're an adult and you'd like to join us, we encourage you to come. We have a blast. And uh, this uh, week it's going to be at the Golden Spike in East Syracuse. And the reason I'm laughing, whenever I hear the name Golden Spike, I think I should be like, okay, you know, maybe pack a little bit. Okay, I'm here. Does it sound like a tough place? But it's not. It's really a nice place and they have good food. So uh, put your name on the sheet so I can call and make reservations. I appreciate that. The Golden Spike. Now, um, let's pray first. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name, and we thank you so much for your Holy Spirit and the way that he is able to fall upon us, not only in salvation, but also in guiding our life, bringing us peace and encouragement in those times of difficulty. And I ask, Father, that it would be your Holy Spirit that guides and uses me this morning to minister to your precious people. So now come and be among us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. You know, one of the things that uh, I love reading Tozier, A.W. Tozier. I don't know if any of you have ever read him. And uh, A.W. Tozier, um, he actually went to be with the Lord in 1964. But he was a, he was a prolific writer. And um, his, his books are amazing. I have been reading um, one of his books, and it's The, the Problem with the Shallow Faith is the name of the book. And um, one of the things after reading the book that really burdened my heart was that the church needs to wake up. We really do need to wake up. Some of you who, who have studied church history, you know about the Great Awakening. There's actually four Great Awakenings that took place in the United States, two that we're you know, most often aware of. And the Awakening wasn't because there wasn't any church. It wasn't because Christianity wasn't well attended to on Sunday mornings. It was because the church was asleep. They weren't doing anything. And the first Great Awakening goes all the way back to uh, 1735 with Jonathan Edwards. And uh, he was a a New England pastor. um, And he preached a message called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And it would be much more legalistic than you and I would be accustomed to today. And, and, but anyway, it just woke the church up. It went all through New England. It went all through the, uh, you know, the nation. And there was an awakening of Christianity where believers were realizing it's not enough just to be born again and have the assurance of going to heaven. We're supposed to actually be doing something, loving Jesus, living for him, excited about the kingdom of God. Then the Second Great Awakening, which took place in uh, the 1840s, and that was mostly among independent churches, and it actually started with the AME, and that's the African Methodist Episcopal Church. And then through other independent churches, this Great Awakening took place, and people were starting to wake up and realize, if we're Christians, we should live like we're Christians. If we're servants of God, we should be serving Him. And so we need to be excited about what it means to be a believer. And that's what awakening up is. I mean, I think about it every day. I mean, I don't know if you understand that every single one of us will stand before the judgment seat of, of God at some time. For we must all stand before the judgment seat. 
because, you know, the Word of God tells us. Whether it be at the rapture when God comes and takes his church out of the world, or whether it be at death, we're going to stand before the Lord. And here is the wonderful news. You talk about good news, no, it's great news. Here's the wonderful news. Anyone, and guess who's included in anyone? Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Saved from what? Sin and death. We're all sinners, right? Every one of us recognize we're sinners. And the very realization that we can be forgiven our sin and our sin can be taken from us as far as the east is from the west, remembered no more, reconciled with God and having that assurance to go to heaven. What could be better than that? And that's the good news God has given us to share with others. And I do pray for another great awakening before the Lord comes for his church. I really do. I would love to see a revival. Now understand, we're not talking about revival. Revival is when something that was dead is made alive. Revival is those who are almost dead are revived. And it's talking about the church. We need revival. We need to wake up. We need to have that kind of awakening that we can get out there and be sharing the truth you know, with those around us. Now, in this portion of Scripture that we're going to be looking at, some people uh, have different ideas and titles that they have for the portions they're covering. And if I was looking at this one and just giving some kind of uh, um, a, a title for this, I would say it's called a second chance. But it's, it's interesting that God not only gives us second chances, but third chances, fourth chances, fifth chances. God gives us as many chances as we need. How many chances is that? I don't know. How many chances do you need? He's always waiting for us to have that, you know, to come back to him. And um, I love in Luke 17:4, Jesus said, And if he sins against you seven times, these people were asking him, How often should we forgive those who sin against us? And Jesus said, If he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. Then again in Matthew, chapter 18, verses 21 through 22, Peter, trying to be magnanimous, he said to, to, the, to Jesus, he said, how many times should we forgive a man? Seven times? And he thought he was being wonderful because according to the law, you only had to forgive twice. So I'm forgiving seven times. Is that how many times? And Jesus said, no, seven times 70, which was just an analogy for infinitely. As many times as a person is seeking forgiveness, you forgive them. That's what the Lord wants us to do. Because it's such a great importance for us to have a right understanding of who God is and who we are. You know, God is absolutely holy and righteous and perfect in all of his ways, Scripture tells us. But God isn't up there in heaven like this. Just make my day. Make Iran move and you're done. Because even though God is righteous and holy in all of his ways, what does it tell us is the very nature of God in Scripture? Love. So he is like the parent that knows what's right and just wants his child to do what's right because that parent loves the child. And the Lord desires us to be in relationship with him, to have fellowship with him. And that fellowship can only be in righteousness, not ours, but his and that's why he imparts to us his Holy Spirit when we're born again. And his spirit, Scripture says, intercedes with our spirit. 
And we're able to have this kind of relationship with the Lord. So we have to have an understanding of who God is. And God is such a loving God. He's such a truthful God. So we're picking up in Exodus chapter 34. You know, one of the things that I, I think is really worth mentioning here, we have to understand who we are as well in relationship to God. We're not innocent. We're guilty. We're not victims. We're perpetrators. We're not, so, you know, all the sin and problems we have, it's not someone else's fault. It's our fault. But we have come to a place in our society and in our nation where it's a victim mentality. All the problems I have is someone else's fault. I'm just a victim. No, you're not. You're the perpetrator. You're the sinner. Because here's the reality. We should never base our, our joy, our happiness, or even our relationship with God on how many material possessions we have, how many friends we have, you know, how... Um, prestigious my employment is, it should never be based on any of that. Our relationship with God is based on who he is. So I'm not a victim. I'm telling you what, I am a receiver of all of his glory, of all of his grace, of all of his mercy, because I'm a sinner. And he saved me. What a beautiful example we have here. So we're picking up in Exodus, and you'll see very quickly why it's a second chance. Remember, uh, Moses came down from the mountain. He was up in the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights with God, and God gave him the Ten Commandments. Literally, this is not just some figurative you know, teaching. This has literally happened. And Moses is coming down the mountain with Joshua, carrying the Ten Commandments that God gave him. And understand, before Moses went up, all the people... See, we have great intentions, but we need to follow through. All the people said, Moses, you go up in that mountain... And whatever God tells you that we should do as his people, you come back and tell us what God said, and we'll do it. So Moses is up in the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, and he's coming down out of the mountain, and all of a sudden there's all this noise coming from the camp of Israel. Now understand the camp of Israel wasn't in the thousands or tens of thousands. It was uh, probably anywhere from 1.2 to 2.3 million and that's because we are given the population of the fighting men as they came out of Egypt. And if you take the population of fighting men, which is 20 and above, 20 actually to 50, and then you figure there are guys older than 50, guys younger than 50, and then there were women and there were children, we think it could be, it was at least over a million people. So when there was a noise in the camp, it was a big noise. And Joshua actually thought that there was war going on, and Moses said, no, that's not war. It's revelry. They're... they're so he comes down, and they're in the worst kind of sin. And so Moses took the tablets, and he threw them, you know, and broke them on the ground. Now, if you've seen the Ten Commandments, you know that when he threw the tablets, the shards went all over the place and hit the golden calf, and it blew up and all that stuff. But that was just in the movie. Anyway, um, he comes down, and he broke the tablets, and he rebukes the people, and, and then the, the people repent. And so here what we have is God giving them a second chance. Verse 1 of chapter 34, and the Lord said to Moses, cut two tablets of stone like the, one, like the first ones, and I will write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablets, now notice what it says, which you broke, 
God never commanded Moses to break the tablets. That was out of his own anger. And that's why Moses identified himself with the people as far as being a sinner is concerned. Verse 2. So be ready in the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. And no man shall come with you. And let no man be seen throughout all the mountain. Let neither flocks nor herds feed before the mountain. So Moses, so he cut two tablets of stone like the first ones. Then Moses rose early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai, went up Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him uh, there and proclaimed his name and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Verse 6. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. By no, means, um, uh, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. So Moses made haste and bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped. Then he said, If now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. And once again, in, in, in that last verse there, notice how Moses identified himself with, you know, with the people. You know, among us, we are our iniquity, our sin, take us. Because anyone who is going to be a mediator needs to be able to identify with the people. Like if I stood up here and I was praying for us as a body and I was praying and I said, Oh Lord, I just pray that you'd forgive those wretched sinners out there in those seats. What am I saying? It doesn't include me. But if I'm praying and I say, Lord, forgive us sinners. When we recite what we call the Lord's Prayer, which really wasn't the Lord's Prayer. It was the disciples asked how to pray, and the Lord gave this as an instruction how to pray. The Lord's Prayer was really found later in John. But anyway, we don't need to get into that. But in part of that, forgive us our sins. Us, our. See, it's all-inclusive. And so we have to understand it's important for you and I to realize if we want to be mediators with other people, we have to identify with them and identify with their sin as we're all sinners saved by grace. Now, these second tablets, which Moses cut out of stone, they were blank. He said, just cut the tablets out of stone. Why were they blank? Because all Scripture is God's word to man, not man's word to man. They were blank. God, the finger of God, wrote the Ten Commandments on the first two tablets that Moses you know, took up to the mountain, and it was the finger of God that wrote the commandments on these tablets too. The word of God is to man. It's God speaking to man, not man to man. And people make a mistake when they try to look at the Bible as if it's just some human philosophy or, you know, or, or some kind of a human you know, behavioral science book that we can look at that helps one another. This is the word of God. And it transcends all of our weaknesses and all of our you know, uh, stupidity and it really goes to the heart of the issue of what it means to be a believer, what it means to be a Christian. 
And this is why in 2 Timothy 2.15 it says, Be diligent to present yourselves approved of God. Listen, a worker who does not need to be ashamed. Why? Rightly dividing the word of truth. We need to rightly divide the word of truth. And how we rightly divide the word of truth is we just let the word say what it says. You know, so many people get into all these theologies and they get into all of these doctrines and, you know, and, 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 oh, I'm reading about this theology and I'm reading about this doctrine. All that does is mess your head up. Just read the Word of God. Let the Word of God say what it says. Let it speak to your heart and I promise you it will. <clears throat> you know, there was a, a song years ago, uh, Looking for Love in All the Wrong Places, and I think what applies to the church today to to people in the world, but to the church also, is looking for truth in all the wrong places. The wisdom of man will never give you what you're looking for. Only the wisdom, wisdom that comes from above will give you the answers your heart seeks after. It's the only answers you'll find. Now, the Lord commanded Moses to present himself alone that he might hear from the Lord. And you know what, brothers and sisters? It's so important for us to understand we need to have a time alone with the Lord. You know, Vi and I have been talking about this for the past few days because sometimes as married couples, you never think of having time alone. You know, you're always together and, and this and that. But we need to have time alone. Moses was called to be alone. And if your house is a busy house, have some room, have some closet, something designated that this is an alone place. This is a private place to be with the Lord. And when someone is in there, don't bother them. And just a little modern uh, encouragement that I would give you. When you go into that place to be alone with the Lord, leave your cell phone out of that place. Because the cell phone is no respecter of men. <laughs> I mean, it'll ring and it'll vibrate and it'll buzz no matter what's going on, no matter who you're with. You need to have a time that you're literally alone with the Lord. It's so important. Now, the Lord then commanded Moses to present himself alone that he might hear from the Lord. And, the he, and it's interesting uh, that the Hebrew word here for present is nasab. That's the word. Nasab is the Hebrew word that means to present yourself. Now, it's a very interesting word in the Hebrew because what it means, it's like a soldier presenting himself before his commanding officer. So when it talks about presenting yourself before the Lord, it's not like... Hey, man, here I am. What do you want to speak to me, Lord? Yeah, come on. Throw it out. I don't care. I'm ready. You know, just some kind of a casual attitude. It's more of like, here I am, Lord, reporting for duty. Speak to me. It's a respectful going before the Lord. And so when we go before the Lord, it should be with a respectful attitude. I want to hear from you, God, in order to obey. What you tell me, I shall do. And um, it's interesting, <clears throat> in Romans 12.1, and it says this, we are instructed to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. It's interesting because the Lord saved our souls, right? We had nothing to do with the Lord saving our souls. All we did is receive that free gift of salvation. The Lord saved our souls, but yet we're to present ourselves our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Why? So that we might serve him. What would be the purpose of becoming a servant of God 
and being unwilling to serve. Yeah, I just hired two new servants for my house. And, of course, the stipulation we have is they don't serve. They do whatever they want. (laughs) That doesn't make any sense at all. If we're servants of the Lord, it's for the purpose of serving him. We have to be willing. Lord, what would you have me do? I'll do it. And I loved that, uh, if you notice, um, Moses immediately obeyed. And it tells us he left early in the morning. You know, there's something about having that morning time with the Lord before life crashes in. Do you know when life starts crashing in, brothers and sisters, the minute you put your foot out of that bed, (laughs) right? I mean, life has a way of just crashing in on us. So if it's possible for you to have a time alone with the Lord before everything else takes place, if it's five minutes, if it's ten minutes, however, you know, set your alarm. Maybe you might want to give the Lord an hour. But just to have a time alone with the Lord, Lord, here I am, speak to me, strengthen me, encourage me, use me this day. And I think you'd be amazed of how the Lord would be able to work in your life. And then it tells us, that the Lord proclaims his name. And we're going to find it's not a proper name as much as it is his character and his attributes. In other words, it's not necessarily a proper name. And, um, and you know, it's going to sound like I'm getting all uh, heady here and stuff like that, but in William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, and uh, remember Romeo was of the house of Montague, and Juliet was the daughter of Kepolet. And the problem was those two families fought with one another. They were rivals. They really didn't like one another. And so the idea of Romeo and Juliet coming from the two different houses and being together was repugnant to their families. And that's the reason that their love affair was kind of sneaky. And there's one point when, you know, Juliet is trying to encourage Romeo. It doesn't make any difference what family you're from, what your family name is. What I'm looking at is who you are in your heart. And that's where we have that uh, very famous quote. And Juliet is speaking to Romeo. And uh, scene five act... No, I'm just joking. Um, What's in a name? That which uh, we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Think about that. What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. In other words, it's not the name as much as it is the nature of who the person really is. And so we have to understand that in relationship with God. I mean, we can call him God. We can call him Jesus. We can call him Jehovah. We can call him Joshua. We can call him Yahweh. We can call him Jehovah. We can call him the Lord. But you know what? It doesn't change who he is. The aroma of Christ is always sweet to the believer. And so we have to understand it's not as, as I mean, we, we have a name. We, we, you know, our Father who art in heaven, and, and we cry out to Jesus. And it's wonderful to know that there is some kind of a name which we can cry out. But do we understand who he is? Do we understand his nature, his, his love, his compassion? That's what we need to know. Now, <clears throat> let's notice that the attributes of the Lord that he gives, he first proclaims his eternity. And in, in, in uh, the Hebrew, it's actually Jehovah, Jehovah. 
You know what that means? Self-existent. Self-existent one, self-existent one, eternal one, eternal one. I always was, I always will be. And he presents himself as that. And you know, one of the things that people have asked me over the years, was it difficult being a science major and believing in creation? Absolutely not, because I know the law of biogenesis. Life only comes from life, and there's only one who's ever called the living God. And nothing, you know... Something never comes from nothing, right? I don't know how many, I don't care how many times you add zeros together, the answer is always zero. Nothing plus nothing equals nothing. But if there is, and there is, a self-existent God, beyond our ability even to understand, how do we even understand that? How do we wrap our head about that? But there was a a self-existent God who could say, let there be, and there was. It's unbelievable the God that we serve. And then the Lord, he goes into his character, merciful. And it's interesting because the word rakum, merciful there, means showing mercy to someone who has no hope. Showing mercy to someone who has no hope. A lot of times we're willing to show mercy to people that we think, well, they might be able to help us someday or they're pretty, you know, maybe they could really become somebody special but to just show mercy towards someone who has no hope at all. It doesn't make any difference you show mercy towards them. You know, one of the things that my darling son convicted me about is, um, I know you all understand this, you've experienced this, where you're driving down the street and uh, there's a guy or girl standing by the road saying, haven't eaten, you know, uh, I'm hungry and all this and that. And... uh, in my righteous indignation, I used to drive up and think, I'm not putting my window down. They're just going to spend it on booze. But my son said to me, number one, you don't know if that's what they're going to spend it on. Maybe they really are hungry. Maybe they are in a difficult time. And the point is, what's your heart in giving it? And so now I try to make sure I keep quarters. No, I'm just joking. Now I try to make sure I keep a few dollars if I can. And then when I come by someone, I can hand them a few bucks. I don't know. But the thing is, that's what we're talking about here. Merciful. Showing mercy to those that seem to have no hope. And of course, in Micah 6, 8, it says, He has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord desires of you, to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly before your God. And gracious, kanah, that means to bend or stoop down in kindness to an inferior. Now, that sounds pretty precocious, an inferior. But it means someone who we might think um, is not doing what they should be doing. Aren't, they aren't living up to the standard that they should be living. They've, they've messed their life up. But then it means to show, you know, to be gracious towards even them, to bend down in kindness to an inferior. And think of Jesus, when you think, I don't want to bend down in kindness to an inferior, think about Jesus. And I want you to turn along with me to Philippians, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. So go to Philippians chapter 2, in verse 5 we're going to pick up. Philippians 2, verse, verses 5 through 11 are verses I, I wish we had in a placard somewhere. I, I, I love it. I mean, it's just... It's fantastic. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. We're picking up with Philippians 2, verse 5. 
Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. He was equal with God. But made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, of those on earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You talk about condescending. Here's God becoming a man for no other reason than love that we might be redeemed back to God. So how can we ever feel we're too good to bow down and help someone or this person isn't worthy of our you know, attention or help? What pride that would be. Long suffering, erect. It means uh, to draw out at length or to tarry. In other words, your long-suffering isn't just a little bit. It's however long-suffering you have to be in order to encourage one, an- uh, you know, one another. In Second Peter 3, 9, it says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slow- slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Aren't you glad the Lord is patient with us? When I first heard about being born again, I used to mock it. I used to make fun of it. You know, people that we knew that become Christians, Vi and I would be joking with one another, and we'd go, praise the Lord. <laughs> not knowing that not too many years later, we'd, we'd be saying, praise the Lord. And uh, so it's a wonderful thing to, to have that kind of long-suffering. Give people time. I'm glad the Lord gave us time, and I'm glad others were patient with, with Vi and I. And, um, and then it talks about abounding in goodness and truth. Abounding, which is raw, is uh, it means always enough. Isn't that great? That's what the Hebrew word means for abounding. It means always enough. How much do you need? As much as you need. How much should I, how patient should I be with this person? As patient as you need to be. How much should I give? As much as you need to give. And so we have to have that. That's the kind of abounding love God has for us, for us there. And the truth, MF, means stable, certain, sure, true. The truth is the truth. It doesn't change. You know, that's the reason I, loved, I love exact sciences. One of the reasons I like math is because 2 plus 2 equals 4. No matter how you put it, 2 plus 2 always equals 4. It's not up for debate. It's not doesn't change in time. It's very exact. I love that. Well, God is very exact. His truth is very exact. He never changes. And um, for the word of God, for the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all that he does. That's Psalm um, 33, 4. 
Then it goes on to say, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. His love and forgiveness is available to all who call upon his name. In fact, in um, Acts 2.21, it says, for everyone... And I love that. For every, who, who's included in that? Everyone. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And why is it important to call upon the name of the Lord? Because those who don't call upon the name of the Lord are found guilty. And that's why it tells us he does not uh, leave the, the guiltless, the guilty, unpunished. There's a consequence In our decision for the Lord, there's a consequence. If we commit our life to Jesus Christ, we have all the assurances of heaven, all the assurances of forgiveness, everything the Bible tells us. And if we reject the teachings of God, then it goes the other way. None of these promises are ours. And no one is ever going to be able to stand before God and say, Why? Because... The Lord is going to say, I did everything I possibly could, including coming to earth in the flesh myself and speaking to you, giving you my word, dying on the cross, and then rising from the dead, being your hope of resurrection and ascending to the right hand of God the Father, giving you the assurance that one day you're going to be with me there, with the Father, before the throne of glory. Man. It's, it's just so un- unbelievable. And the thing we have to understand, man's definition of sin might change, but God's doesn't. Somehow we think, as time goes on, and, well, we're in a new generation, this is a different generation, we think God's definition of sin, you know, has to change to go along with the times. We think that, right? Well, it doesn't. Sin is sin. In Hebrews... Um, I love this. In Hebrews uh, 13, it says this. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And you can keep your finger here in Exodus. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And we're going to pick up with verse 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9. We're going to pick up with verses 9 and 10. Starting with verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, or unless you're really in love with the person, nor idolaters, well, this is God to me, nor adulterers, well, if you know what my wife, my husband was doing to me, or homosexuals, it's the way I was born, nor sodomites, well, I just have this propensity nor thieves, well, I I, I needed this, nor covetous, well, I'm going to hang on to what I have and I want what you have, nor drunkards, well, I just get drunk once in a while, nor revilers, well, that person needs to be criticized, nor extortioners, I'm going to get what I need no matter what, will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, obviously, you know I'm being facetious as I was going through that because that's the way the world looks at it today. But what is it saying? Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Now, you might be thinking, I've fallen to some of those sins. 
Well, you have to understand that in the Greek, it's, it, what's what we call the imperative, it's the present continuous tense in the Greek. In other words, it's not talking about someone who just falls to these sins. It's talking about someone who's living a lifestyle of these sins. You know what I mean? A lot of us have had some time that we just drank too much, we got drunk. But that's not our lifestyle. And a lot of people have fallen to this sin. But they repented of it. It isn't their lifestyle. They've fallen to that sin, but they've repented of it. It's not their lifestyle. But what it's talking about here is when it becomes a lifestyle. And I'm afraid that even in the church, we wink at some of these sins. Well, you know, it's a little different now. No, it's not. If you're living a present continuous lifestyle, according to what we read here, do not, it says you'll not inherit the kingdom of God. I take that very serious. Well, that's not what it really means. Well, what does it mean? Well, you're being legalistic. I'm just reading the Word of God. What does it mean? It says what it says. I refuse to ever take the Word of God and try to bend it into my own understanding or the times in which we're living. The Word of God is the Word of God. Now, the reality is that God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love and truth. What we just read, right? So, even though maybe we're dealing with some of these things... The Lord wants us to deal with them, and you'll eventually have victory. And I shared with you, I think it was last week, when I first got saved, I I had a serious drinking problem, and I smoked two packs of cigarettes a day. And when I got saved, it wasn't like, well, hallelujah, I'm free from everything. I wasn't. And every time I would fall to drinking too much and get drunk, I would be weeping before the Lord the next day. And I'm so glad the Lord didn't say, well, you know, I have gave you 12 chances and that's it now. You're going to hell. I'm so glad the Lord was patient because there was that one day when I made that commitment to the Lord, God, with your help, I'll never drink again. And I haven't. And that's over 40 years ago. And the same with smoking. Lord, you've got to help me. And I quit and never smoked again. So we have to understand, along with reading the consequences of these sins, to recognize the Lord is patient and gracious and long-suffering. He wants us to come to a right relationship with him. Now, God's love is much different than human love. His love, listen carefully because this might throw you when I first say it. His love has nothing to do with how we feel about him. While we were still enemies, he expressed his love towards us in the most profound and ultimate way. He died for us. So his love, it's not, well, I love God so much and now he loves me. The scripture doesn't say that. It says we love him because what? He first loved us. And so the only reason I can love God is he loved me. I'm even unworthy of love. But God poured his love out on me. Now I can say, I love him. And um, how different his love is than our love. Because our love is this. You love me, I'll love you. You don't love me, I don't love you. And um, human love needs to be put to death, and we need to be filled with, with his agape love. And you might say, how do you... Agape is a Greek word, and it means an unconditional love. In other words, you don't have to do anything to... Uh, have me love you. I'll just love you. 
And that's the way God's love is towards us. And how do we know if we have this agape love? In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 7, and I'm going to read it in the Living Bible. The way it writes it in the Living Bible is pretty awesome. And this is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. If I had the gift of being able to speak in other languages without learning them and could speak in every language there is in all of heaven and earth but didn't love others, I'd only be making noise. If I had the gift of prophecy and knew all about what is going to happen in the future, knew everything about everything but didn't love others, what good would it do? Even if I had the gift of faith so that I could speak to a mountain and make it move, I would still be worth nothing at all without love. If I give everything I have to the poor and if I were burned alive for preaching the gospel but didn't love others, it would be of no value whatever. Love is very patient and kind, never jealous or envious, never boastful or proud, never haughty or selfish or rude. Love does not demand its own way. It is not irritable or touchy. It does not hold grudges and will hardly even notice when others do it wrong. It is never glad about injustice, but rejoices whenever truth wins out. If you love someone, you will be loyal to him no matter what the cost. You will always believe in him, always expect the best of him, and always stand your ground in defending him. You know, being rude, irritable, touchy, sensitive, holding grudges, being judgmental is only another expression of pride. Well, I'm just that way. I just touch you. No, you're prideful. Because why would you behave that way? Because I don't deserve for anyone to treat me poorly because I'm wonderful. See, it's pride. Anytime we have these kinds of expressions towards other people, it's just pride. And think about this. If you can easily dissolve a friendship with someone, they were never your friend. If you can easily dissolve a friendship with someone, they were never your friend. And then it says, Moses bowed to the ground at once and he worshipped. Oh Lord, if I have found favor in your eyes, he said, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people... Forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. You see, when anyone comes before the Lord, they have to fall down and worship. Proskonia is the word that is used there. It's falling down and worship. You're worthy, oh God. And just recognizing and confess. And the only way we can come before the Lord is with a heart of confession and repentance. Here's the thing. If you're thinking if you think you're a good person and you really don't have any need for Jesus, you'll never see your need for Jesus. But when you recognize you're a sinner, when you recognize your need, you see your need for Jesus and you come to him and you say, forgive me, Jesus, a sinner. You know, one of the problems I had um, for a while, just being honest with you before I came to the Lord, is um, I, I actually thought I was a great guy. I mean, I really did. I mean, uh, no one in, I was the first person in my house to graduate from high school. My father went to sixth grade. He's a coal miner, greatest man you'll ever meet. Worked hard his whole life, you know, in, in the heart of the earth, you know, picking coal. And um, so here I was, and, and I had a hard time. I'm not going to get into the whole thing, but I had a learning disability. I failed first, second, and third grade. I had my driver's license in eighth grade. 
I drove to eighth grade graduation. <laughs> That's when they had eighth grade graduation. I, I couldn't take driver's ed because you take that when you're a junior and I was already 19. I'd already had my license for about four years, three years. So I had a real hard time getting started. But then, you know, after the Army, I went to college and I ended up doing very well and received my bachelor's degree and two other advanced degrees. And I finished with a, my master's of 382, not as good as my granddaughter Taylor. She has a 4 average. But anyway... Um, and, 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 you know, I, I got a teaching job. We lived in the suburbs. And Vi and I got married. And we had, you know, Frank and, and his sister, Stacy. And, and I just think, I, I'm a pretty good guy. I've really accomplished a lot. And then all of a sudden, things started crashing in on me. Not that anyone was coming after me or yelling at me or anything. All of a sudden, I started realizing, I'm not such a great, nice guy. I have this weakness, I have that weakness, I'm, I'm drinking too much, I'm, I'm smoking, and, and you know, here I am teaching the, the, the dangers of smoking and then going into the faculty room and having a cigarette. You know, and, and, I, and all of a sudden I started realizing what a hypocrite I was. And, and, and I can still remember standing, in, we lived in Big Flats, New York, and I was standing in front of the, our picture window, it was a Saturday, and I remember standing there and, the, and buying the kids, and buying, we had a great relationship, a great home, and standing in the window and thinking, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? Then it was shortly after that that Vi and I came to the Lord, and it's a decision I'll never regret. And I don't know how many years ago it was now. See, how old was Frank? Three? Frank was three, and, and he's 12 now. No, I'm not talking about his personality. I mean, <clears throat> you know, <laughs> Frank's 44, because I, I was 30 when you were born, 44. So that's not, we've been saved, you know, 41 years. Never, never looked back on it and said, oh, I wish I would have made another decision. I praise God for it every day. And I just give you one encouragement before I close. At the very beginning, I talked about a great awakening. We need an awakening. If you're, if you're a Christian, if you're born again, pray that the Lord would work an awakening in your heart, a revival in your heart, that you would be so excited for the things of God in a way you've never been before. And if you're not saved, if you're not born again, if you've never committed your life to Jesus Christ, I'm not here to push anything down your throat. I'm not going to embarrass you by telling you to come forward and fall on your face in front of you. I can do any of that. All I'm going to tell you is if you're not born again, if you're not saved, you need to be. Because we're all sinners. And we innately know that this body's going to die. This body's going to perish. What happens after that? Because who you are you know in your heart is soul and spirit. That's immaterial. It's eternal. What's going to happen after your body dies? You can make a decision today to know what's going to happen, that you're going to go and be with the Lord. The Apostle Paul could write, to be absent from the body is to be present for, with the Lord. For me to live is Christ, but for me to die is gain. That's what Paul wrote. And so if you've never been born again, it's no horrible, magical thing. You don't have to do penance. You don't have to, you know, jump up and down three times, clapping your hands behind your back or anything like that. All you have to do is simply just bow your head before the Lord and say, forgive me, a sinner. And he will. That's simple. Jesus gave the whole example of that, didn't he, in the Gospels? Forgive me, a sinner. 
And Jesus will. And then ask him to take over your life. And Jesus will. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name, and we thank you for your word and the way that it's able to speak to our hearts and encourage our souls. And I pray, Father, that um, you really would cause an awakening to break out in our fellowship, a real awakening, Lord. And I pray, Father, that if there are any here today who don't know you, this would be the day of their salvation, that they would give their hearts and lives to you. And I pray and ask all this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen and amen. God bless you, my friends.